Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. In the podcast this week, I have a conversation with a patient advocate who discusses occasions when she's had to make choices for herself and her family. As she says in this snippet, Ultimately, in that moment as an advocate, I was not asking permission. I was asking for support. It was my honor to host a conversation with Nikki Montgomery. Nikki, you're very welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. You're a patient advocate. And when we were talking earlier, before we started this conversation, we talked about that experience, that advocacy work coming from within an experience of the healthcare system, which is often less than perfect. So tell us about how your journey started and how you eventually ended up in healthcare. It started because I am the sibling of a person who had disabilities and complex medical care. I was eight years old when my sister was born. So I got to see a lot of her medical journey, which included lots of hospitalizations and surgeries. She passed away in 2012 at the age of 27 due to complications of a rare genetic condition. And my son was born just not very uh, much before her passing. And he also had the same complex genetic condition for which I am a carrier. So A lot of my early learning about complex healthcare needs came from my sister who was tube-fed from birth and my son had the same experiences, but he also had more intensive needs like a ventilator and a tracheostomy, also had a feeding tube, which at 10 he still has. So we have a lot of complex care still happening in our world. And we are frequent flyers, as they like to say, at the hospital where it really is kind of a second home sometimes, unfortunately, but We have great experiences and relationships in his children's hospital, and I've served on the board there and led the Family Advisory Council and done lots of work there, really all out of the intensity of my my experiences with him. Great. Thank you very much for that. Your experience of healthcare over these years, what has that been like? What are the things that stick in your mind when it comes to meeting your needs? I think what I learned very early on is that it can vary. Uh, that I've had excellent experiences and I've had very difficult experiences. I've had experiences that were collaborative and I've had some that were really kind of awful. And really learning how to navigate that was a skill I had to develop that nobody could teach me. So on top of that, as a Black woman in the United States, there are stereotypes that people have and the bias in healthcare that I also felt the need to navigate. So I realized as I'm advocating for my infant son, really, it's about how the physician perceives me and perceives what I'm saying about his condition and whether they believe me. And we hear those themes in healthcare so much, but they show up in many different domains in healthcare. And for me, those themes still showed up in my son's care as a caregiver for an infant with complex needs. Let's drill down a bit on that. Are the issues technical? Are they communication issues? Are they attitudinal issues? Or is it a whole raft of all of those? I think it could be any one of those. I have run into lots of communication issues, whether it was the communication of bias or whether it was just poor communication about what needed to happen, seeking clarity and how I might have been treated if I was seeking clarity or advocating. So those things are part of it. Then sometimes it's even behavioral. Like when I, when I enter a healthcare facility and we have an opportunity to interact, what does that look like and what does that feel like? 
I think there's a lot of variation there. And that was really the biggest challenge I had. I never knew what to expect. And then not knowing what to expect really placed the burden on me to perform to get the needed uh, response from physicians. So I might have to always feel like I had to be the star caregiver to get what my son's to get my son's needs met. And that has added pressure as a patient to have to come in and realize the way someone perceives you could definitely affect how they treat you in that moment. That is disturbing. I'm sure many people listening to this are going to feel that this is similar to their experience. To me as a physician, that is disturbing. When you faced with that kind of critique of the healthcare system, where do you think the healthcare system could improve its response? Uh, There are a couple of ways. First, the interpersonal interactions have to improve and be consistent. But secondly, when it's not consistent, what do I as a patient do? Most places, they don't have a mechanism where they'll say, hey, if you experience bias in your care, here's where you can report it and talk about it and make sure there's a remedy. I don't have a feedback mechanism for that. And that is a feeling of powerlessness in such a consumer-driven world where we can give a star rating to every video we see and press like. And in my healthcare experience, I don't always have the opportunity to give that level of feedback and to really be able to express what was missing from my experience to make it excellent. That's interesting because there are star ratings of hospitals now in other parts of the world, possibly not where you are. I bought something from a department store recently. They contacted me afterwards to say, can you rate the service and can you rate the product? I was delighted to do it. I was pleased with both of those. I would have done it even if I wasn't. Do you think that that is the way forward or do you think that that is now becoming overrated and meaningless? I think it could be the way forward still. I think there need to be more modes and mechanisms because an eight-page survey is not necessarily going to get filled out by many patients when you send it to their homes after a hospitalization. But I think the other part is specific types of concerns. You don't have a lot of free text to write these things out and really explain what happened. Not everyone knows they can contact a hospital's patient advocacy office if they have one, that there are patient experience people. So if I had not learned those things along the way, I would have no way to know how to report an issue I'm having in my care experience. And a lot of that has been from my own personal experience working with councils and hospitals, but that's privilege that I have to have gained that knowledge that a lot of families and individuals don't have. Okay, I want to go into a little bit more detail here because it's important. It's important that the healthcare system hears what is not working. So I'll give you an example. A few years ago, many years ago, when we were having our second child, the hospital had a benchmark for how quickly a woman was seen by a midwife when she went into the antenatal clinic. And how they got around that was as soon as we walked into the antenatal clinic, my wife was weighed and measured. She was put in a waiting room and she waited there for four hours before she was seen the next time. But when it came to the report and we saw the report uh, that was put out into the public domain, it appeared that she was seen within seconds of setting foot by a midwife at the antenatal clinic. That kind of gaming happens when you have a star system and when you have this so-called feedback, which is meaningless. Do you think that there's a real risk that if we go down that route, that it's have a nice day is regarded as 
your patient experience? I fear that. That would be awful. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of work to be done there to make sure we're really capturing that experience in multiple ways and also listening to patients rather than having them check a box on a survey that we've decided on, but patients haven't decided what's important to them. To me, it's important that I'm greeted when I come into a doctor's office or a medical facility. That might not even be an item on the survey. Health literacy and having things explained to me well and having a good discussion is important to me. That might not be on a survey. So I agree with you. There are opportunities to game that system, and that certainly does not increase trust. Because if I look at a star rating and my experience does not match that star rating, I'm not going to trust the star rating. I'm not going to trust the facility. My trust in healthcare as a whole would be diminished in that case. Let's talk now about an example of an experience which was less than perfect in your view and how healthcare responded, because I have no doubts that you would have given some sort of feedback and how that was then translated into action by the health service. One early story in my own medical care was I have a history of uterine fibroids and I was talking to a doctor about what I should do about them. So I asked him all of the possible treatments. This was before I had a child. So I assured him that I wanted to make sure I preserved my fertility. We talked through all those options. And our next appointment, the doctor recommended a treatment to me that would have ruined my fertility. And I knew that because I had looked that information up myself and done some studying myself. But I definitely felt betrayed by a doctor who should have known my priority and who still recommended something that was against my personal priority. I didn't know whether I could trust him. There is a history of, you know, forced sterilization and all sorts of things around women's fertility and particularly Black women's fertility. So all of that comes to mind in this moment where the doctor gives me a treatment plan that does not include my own preferences and does not include what I had directly told him. I did actually, in that situation, end up having a surgery with that doctor. But I remember the morning of that surgery, I said to my husband, I'm afraid he's going to give me a hysterectomy. So even in that moment, I didn't feel in that I had the voice to speak up to that doctor, but I was still afraid. Thankfully, since then, my journey has come a long way and I would be much more vocal about all of that. Had it come up nowadays, I would be a much different patient. But in that time, I was very passive. I listened to what the doctor said. And fortunately, I had done enough studying on my own to stop the process that he was ready to start for me. So that was one of those situations where my trust was definitely eroded in that doctor and never returned. And after I had that surgery and that whole experience of that morning of the surgery being fearful, I did change doctors. Uh, the doctor who a couple years later delivered my son was a female doctor who was a, an ethnic minority. And that was a better fit for me because that trust level. Um, had not been diminished with those doctors or with the other doctors. So that was something that came out of my experience was looking for doctors who were a cultural match for me, if I can find them, or at least looking for doctors with more characteristics that are a cultural match for me. Okay, that's a great example. If you were to be challenged and to be told, there's no way on earth that that doctor could have performed a hysterectomy on you without your consent, what would you have said to that? I would say that I have had enough life history to know that those things still happen sometimes. And that one of when I signed that surgical consent, there was something on there that mentioned potential hysterectomy. So I know what the surgical consent said too, you know. So yes, I would love to say that I felt 
fully secure that nothing would happen that I didn't want to happen. But I didn't feel that. I felt fear. Yes, you're right. Trust definitely was eroded. If you're feeling fear, notwithstanding anything that's on a piece of paper, that fear is real. And we have to acknowledge that. Okay, you have another example, you said. I do. In my more modern days uh, with my son, I had an experience with his with his dietitian that I wanted to give something called a blenderized diet, which is not giving my son a canned formula because he's tube fed, but actually blending food for him. The doctor that I was consulting with had a, a nutritionist on staff or a, a registered dietitian on staff that came to talk to us about it. And they said, well, we cannot recommend that you do this diet. And I asked why, because I was curious. I wanted to give my son real food pureed, which I felt like was a healthy choice. And I wanted to understand why they wouldn't approve that, especially because I had been pumping breast milk for my son for two solid years <laughs> and was really ready to transition to something else at that point. Um, but the doctor, when I asked the reason and the dietitian, they said, well, we're afraid the food will be contaminated in your kitchen. Yeah. So <laughs> that response was to me like, okay, where did that come from? You've not seen my kitchen. I've been using this kitchen to clean bottles for years that I'm, you know, to use my kitchen as the reason that they would not support that diet. And particularly their support was necessary because my son had complex care. And in order for the nurses in our home to give that diet, we had to have a doctor's order for that diet. So the fact that the doctor and the dietitian would not approve it was an obstacle for me. And I had to overcome that obstacle. So in my new phase as a patient advocate, I did not accept that no as an answer. And I later went on and found another gastroenterologist who would approve the kind of diet that I wanted to put my son on, who would support it, give me nutritional information. And I found those kinds of relationships over the years. So my son is now 10 and he's been a tube fed with a blenderized diet for eight years, very healthy, with no contamination from my kitchen. <laughs> so, but that was one of those situations where no, it might not have been bias speaking up, but I don't know what else that was. So it's one of those moments where instead of just taking what they said, I knew I needed to be an advocate for his needs and push forward a little bit more and do something different. So I've been successful at that, but yet another one of those situations where bias kind of weaves its way in and you don't always know that that's what you're dealing with. But in that situation, I've rarely heard other people's kitchens questioned when they're asked how they will feed their child. I'm still stuck on the moment that you were told, we won't do that because your kitchen might be contaminated. Now, we've hardly known each other for very long. We've had a now a 20-minute conversation, and you don't appear to me to be somebody who would put your child at a risk like that. They'd known you for a lot longer. Where did that right. bias come from? I'm struggling to understand. Please explain. I would assume that there are biases about living conditions for people based on class, which is often assumed by race. So if I had to track down the basis of that interaction, that's what I would think. I would also say that the doctors didn't know what my living conditions were. They didn't know that what my education level is and how all of those different things. They didn't know anything about my class or anything. It was confusing and disheartening to have that come up in a medical appointment. And having to be on guard for those little, as they would call them, aggressions is just one of the added stresses because I feel like I'm always watching for that type of 
interaction, watching for it to go south, as people say, because it can so quickly. And that trust can really be ruined in a moment of time. What has become apparent in the medical literature and also from our clinical experience is that we know so little about our patients. We clinicians know so little about our patients. And it's becoming vanishingly less as time goes by, as we see people more often, and we and our time with our patients is made shorter and shorter. What you're suggesting here is that they didn't take the time to get to know you before saying something, which in any other circumstance would have been regarded as highly offensive. If you went into a restaurant and somebody suggested that they don't let you in because you don't clean your shoes before you walk into the restaurant, you would be a tad annoyed. So is there a radical solution or how we can address this issue? Or is it simply that this is a reality which we cannot do anything about in these circumstances? I hope we can do something about it. I don't think that change is quick. I think that it's human nature to segment things and people and separate them and categorize them. I think that's an aspect of human nature. But I think in healthcare, that is deadly. And I think all of the statistics on Black health, for example, show us that that is deadly. So I think the biggest deal is that we have to be able to see patients as individuals and not just collections of numbers and statistics. And if they had treated me as an individual in that situation, they could have asked me what I thought the challenges would be. It could have been a conversation rather than a no. And ultimately, in that moment, as an advocate, I was not asking permission. I was asking for support to do something that I knew was healthy for my son and that I wanted to do. And having that autonomy as a parent is another thing that I think is often taken from you when your child has medical conditions, because there's an assumption that you will not be able to manage those without the strict protocols that the hospital or doctors would prescribe. I would say that many families demonstrate that they're able to step up to that challenge, but also have some freedom to make choices of their own in their child's health. I want to pivot now to the paper that you've just published in the Journal of Health Design, in which you are suggesting that one reason why somebody might want to prevent an illness is because the healthcare system will not respond adequately should they develop that illness. And you talk specifically about the pandemic. Say something about that paper. Summarize that for us in, in a minute or two. Well, so many of the conversations I was hearing as a patient advocate were about increasing trust in the Black community so that we can get people vaccinated and get this herd immunity. And it seemed like the barrier was being placed or the the fault was being placed with Black people who didn't trust healthcare. The thought I had about it was that I don't necessarily trust healthcare. I do trust that my healthcare experience will likely look like the healthcare experiences that have been described in the literature, that I'm more likely to die if I go into the hospital with COVID, that I'm more likely to be on a ventilator, that my care is more likely to be poor. So I'm looking at and thinking about that data and thinking if I have to choose I don't want to choose what I already know is a bad outcome. We know the outcomes for patients like me are worse. So why would I choose that? If I can choose, I will choose to get a vaccination so that I can avoid that situation. Over the years, over the decades, there's never been a time when Black health was equitable and health outcomes were equitable with other groups in in my country. So knowing that, I don't think I can just trust that going into the healthcare system is somehow going to save my life. I think all of the information I have 
all the information that we've seen proves the opposite of that. So I think that we need to really connect that data to our experience and say, if I have a choice, I know that if I go into the hospital, I'm, I'm probably not going to have a great experience. Let's look at these numbers. They're showing us that we're, I'm not going to have a great experience. So why try that? I would like to avoid that at all costs, because if I can't speak for myself, I have to worry about a physician or provider under stress falling to the influence of their own biases, which we know everyone has. That worries me more than any experimental medication, because the experiment has been done on Black outcomes in healthcare, and it's proven already that I'm not going to get great ones, most likely. Thank you. I don't think I could have summarized it any better. What you're saying really is that the healthcare system already, in the course of this conversation, is struggling to meet the needs of people for a variety of reasons, largely because of these inherent biases, racial biases and other biases that lead us to make assumptions about people which are clearly incorrect, and therefore to make choices for them which may not serve their needs. And in a situation where it's a life-limiting illness, that would be catastrophic if you did not have those choices and choices were made which were not in your best interests. Is that a fair comment? That's absolutely fair. I don't know what's leading to those choices in that moment, but it may not be a value for saving me. In the article, I talk about my intersection. So I'm a Black woman, I'm middle-aged, I'm overweight, I have high blood pressure. I have all the stats that might make you say, I won't try so hard with that one because it's not likely she's going to survive. I don't know if those life-saving efforts are going to be made for me the same way they would for a thinner and younger young lady or young man. I don't know. But I know that the outcomes for me are likely to be worse based on what's already been shown. Nikki, you're incredibly articulate. You're thoughtful. You're generous. We love the article that you published in the Journal of Health Design. I think for me, it is the article of the year so far. We'll make sure that there's a link to that article in our show notes and that we publicize this as much as we can. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for all that you do to improve outcomes in healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. And it really is a privilege. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.